Last week, we left the runaway prophet Jonah in a very precarious situation, to say the least. In his foolish attempt to try to run from God, he found himself on a boat in the middle of a tempest, a storm. And while the Gentile sailors were on the deck praying, Jonah was in the belly of the boat, sleeping. Sailors wake him up. They found out he was the cause of their misery. And after Jonah's urging, they hurled him into the sea. Immediately, we read last week, the storm ceased from its raging. Let's pick back up where we left off. This is Jonah 1.17 through 2.10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Father God, salvation belongs to you alone. Would you help us to see this prayer from Jonah and to realize that? To walk away from this place knowing that all things are by you, through you, from you, Lord. This is all a grace. This is all grace and a gift. Help us to see this today. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Whenever people think about the story of Jonah, maybe when you think about it, what do you think about? The fish, right? The whale. You think about a whale. It's the most famous whale in history. And yet the text never says it's a whale. It's just a big fish. It's a great fish. And the fish itself actually plays a very minor role in the story. That was it. That's the whole part. He's... He's commanded, he comes, he swallows, he spits out, and he goes his merry way. Yet it's the only thing most people remember about the story of Jonah. You see, we can get so caught up in the miracle sometimes that we miss the entire point of what God's trying to show us through the miracle. We can can get caught up in the miracle that we miss the miracle giver. And what's the point of the passage? The point of the passage and the point of the whole book is that salvation belongs to the Lord. So I don't want you to forget about the fish. The fish is important, but let's also not make it into a children's coloring book, okay? Let's not not allegorize it. Let's not make it a metaphorical fish. I want a stinky, a scaly, real monstrosity of a fish. It's appointed and prepared by God. With that in mind, I want to quickly note Jonah, he, he, he prays this, from the fish's stomach, but he doesn't write it, you know, so don't think of Geppetto and Pinocchio and he's in his little, you know, on a little table and he's writing by, you know, lantern light. That's not what's happened. Maybe he got spit out. He sat there stunned for a good bit, dried out. 
You know, went, grabbed some pen and paper and kind of reflected on what happened. Or maybe, you know, on his 600 plus mile journey to Nineveh, which he still had, that's when he reflected on what was happening. And, and I only say that because chapter two is unique. It's unique in a sense that it's a, it's a, it's a song. It's a, it's a psalm. It's a, it's a reflection. And we move from prose to poetry. And so Jonah wants us to stop and reflect as well. He wants us to see the prayer and to know that he's, he, he wants us to see what God has done for him in his life. 117 and 210 serve as the framework for the poem. That's the, that's the frame. So God appoints the fish in 117 and then God tells the fish, spit it out. Good fish. In all this, God's in control of the situation from beginning to end. Some have called this prayer from Jonah inside the belly a psalm of Jonah. And I like that. I like that. The great reformer Martin Luther, he wrote this. He said, when I cannot pray, I always sing. (laughs) When I cannot pray, I always sing. And so we move from a prayerless Jonah on the boat to a singing saint in a belly of a fish. How does that happen? What, what changes? What goes on? What can we learn about prayer, about faith, and about God from Jonah? There are three things I want us to see today. The first thing is Jonah's peril. The second thing is Jonah's preservation by God. And finally, Jonah's prayer. In chapter one, we left Jonah in dire straits. Jack Sasson, a professor of biblical studies at Vanderbilt, writes this. He says, in chapter two... Once Jonah plunges into the waters, further events turn strangely limp, with only the novelty of an enwombed human to occupy an audience's attention and to stir its curiosity. The action is about to come to a full halt in order to leave Jonah alone with his God. And so I don't want us to miss the silence here. Jonah is sinking beneath the water. We don't know how long he sinks. We don't know how long he, he's down there. We, we can certainly guess. He says, I was down there long enough. I went deep enough that seaweed had grabbed me up. And I went down to the roots of the mountain, meaning very deep. I was at death's door. Just take a moment to reflect on, on this situation. As Floridians, we know better than most about the ocean. We know about how wild and unruly it can be. The ancient world saw it as a source of of chaos and uncertainty. And so Jonah being thrown into the chaos and God alone being the one to calm the chaos shows the power of the Lord in this situation. Jonah's in peril. And so as he sinks, as as he gasps for air, he despairs for his life as the water inevitably would fill his lungs. Jonah feels as if he's been cast out from the presence of God. It's, that's so funny, because that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted to escape from God's presence, and now here it is. Here it is. You, you wanted to run away? You wanted to, to get away? How does that feel, Jonah? Paul says in Romans 1, he talks about this. He says, God gives people over to their evil desires. Those who hate God, who want nothing to do with them, God gives them over. He turns them over to those desires. What's the result? Despair. Peril. This is hell on earth for them and for Jonah. Listen to how Jonah describes the watery trial. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. This is what we might call an emergency prayer. You know them well. 
We've all prayed them. You may be absent from prayer for many months. You have not prayed in in weeks, months. But then you're cast into the sea. And you cry out to God in distress. Have you gotten into the habit where that's only when you talk to God? Are you only talking to the Lord in emergency prayers? See, sin will do that to us. We saw last week, sin had Jonah asleep. Everything was fine on the boat until the storm came. When we're awakened to our sin, when we're exposed, the heart that loves the Lord calls upon their father. Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. That's a unique metaphor to Jonah. And it conveys the darkness of his soul. You see, Sheol, this is the realm of death. This is the realm of chaos. Jonah is searching for these words. He's looking for any word to express. How bad was it? What was my anxiety level at? Was it, gone, was it past a 10? I was in this horrifying experience. I went to Sheol, the grave, Hades, hell. In the Bible, Sheol is the opposite of an abundant life lived in the presence of God. And it often designates a profound separation from, from God's people and Yahweh. And so out of the belly of Sheol means, uh, how bad was it? I was in hell. I was in the grave. I was lost. I was as good as dead. I was, in fact, a dead man. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. Now, you, you look at this and you read that and you go, wait a second. The sailors cast Jonah into the deep, didn't they? Well, yes, but also no. Because what we've seen from Jonah from the very beginning is that God is sovereign over all things. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the message. God is sovereign over all things. So Joseph in the book of Genesis can say, what my brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so the, act, the sailors are acting on their own volition, and they are acting as the means by which God used to get Jonah into the water. The Lord works through means. The Lord's hand was in the judgment from the beginning. The elements are working against Jonah. The water's against him. The, the waves are against him. The, the skies, everything's against Jonah. The, the, the seaweed is against Jonah. Because the seaweed works for God. Verse 4, then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. I'm driven away from your sight. In Psalm 51, David cries out, cast me not away from your presence. You see, the soul awakened by God, this is the worst possible scenario. A prophet of the Lord running from the presence of God. What? That should not be. To be cast out by God is is worse than death. Verse 5 through 6, he talks about how the waters are closing in to take his life. The seaweed prison, he's in the pit of death. And then verse 7 we read, when my life was fainting away. Literally, it reads like, my soul collapsed in upon itself. Terrors were all around me. The anger of God was the source. The commentator, Brian Estelle, he writes this. He says, chapter 2 of Jonah should haunt us and shake us out of our own doldrums because we are so often just like Jonah. It should also encourage us Because Jonah experiences the mercy of God and then declares in thankfulness the salvation comes from the Lord. And so you see, this is the trial of faith. This is all of us. 
who have faith in God. This is the trial of faith. When our faith is tested in the storms of life, we have the crashing waves, whatever it might be. These are uncertainty, anxiety, fear. You're in the belly of the beast. How will you respond? When all of reason says you are too far gone, your sin, you, you know how bad you are. You're too far gone. There's no way out. Job, would you just curse God and die already? It's in these moments where faith blossoms. We go to Abraham. We see in Romans 4.18, Paul says this wonderful thing. He says, against hope, Abraham believed in hope. <laughs> against hope, he believed in hope. He had faith that salvation belonged to the Lord. Had his hope rested in reason upon his own biology, he would have had no reason to hope. He should have been left without hope if he was resting upon his own dead body, which was as good as dead, which is what the text says. But because his faith was in the Lord, Sarah conceives. She bears a son just as God had promised. You see, that's the victory of faith. When you hope against hope, when you, when you laugh at the wisdom of man, when by faith and through prayer you discover that there's another realm, that there's an unseen kingdom you can touch and hold and taste and smell, this is here through prayer. There are vaults there where moth nor rust can decay and they hold all the promises of God, which we're told are, are yes in Jesus Christ. This is the inheritance promised to us by being buried with Jesus. And receiving him by faith, we accept all of this by God's word as true. Let every man be a liar and let God be true. And so we believe in hope, even in times when there's no foundation for hope. We're not standing on anything. We're on the water. Lord, we're drowning. And like the disciples, all hope is lost. Lord, don't you care if we perish? We, where's, where are we going to stand here? Where, where am I going to place my hope, Lord? Are we lost? The message of Jonah says, no, no, you're never lost for our father always has his eye upon you. He's promised to hear us when we call out to him by faith. Listen to how Paul, again, he describes this wrestle and this struggle between between reason and faith. He says we are afflicted in every way as in the world, but not crushed by faith. We're perplexed by matter of reason, but not driven to despair by faith. We're persecuted in the world, but not forsaken by faith. We're struck down in the world, but not destroyed by faith. We always carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now, I added those things in the matter of reason, faith, but I want to show you what Paul's saying. He's saying we hold to these things by faith. And so you may feel forsaken. You may feel perplexed. You may feel crushed. And maybe you are. Maybe the world is crushing you. Maybe the weight of sin is crushing you. But you're not forsaken. Because Christ has promised you to keep you. In these moments of despair, our faith has to lash itself somewhere. And we lash to the port, our anchor to the port of Jordan's stormy banks. And we hope against Hope. We believe in hope. Psalm 42 is such a powerful psalm. It's a psalm for people who find themselves, like Jonah, in sorrow of soul. The psalmist says his tears have been his food. Have you ever soaked your pillow 
with tears? Have, 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 you, have the tears ever been your food? He's mocked for his faith. His soul has folded in upon itself. Have you ever been to that place of spiritual poverty, of sorrow? Are you there right now? He says in verse 7, deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. That sounds like Jonah, doesn't it? The authors James Smith and Robert Lee, they beautifully elaborate on this meaning of what deep calls to deep means. They write this. The deep of man's need calleth unto the deep of God's fullness. And the deep of God's fullness calleth unto the deep of man's need. Between our emptiness and his all-sufficiency, there is a great gulf. Deep calleth unto deep. The deep mercy of God meets our emptiness into which it might pour itself. Nothing can fully meet the depth of our need but the depth of his almighty fullness. And so you see it's in these perilous times that faith rises to the surface. And we must pray. We must pray for in our weakness... He is strong. And in those moments where we have no words to pray, the Bible says, don't worry, the Spirit prays for you with groans you can't even imagine. The Spirit prays, and when all hope is lost, the heart of faith starts to pulsate and beat with new life. And we say, Abba, Father. It's in these moments the great hearer of prayer, he delights. He delights to answer all of those who come to him as his children. This is when he receives the true and pure glory due his holy name. You see, it's when we've reached the bottom of the rope. It's when all the doctors have diagnosed the same terrible outcome. It's when there's no possible solution apart from divine intervention for you to be saved. That's when you come to realize that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. And by faith, which in itself is a gift, And through prayer, you gaze into the unseen realm of God's mercy. You precious saints here today, if you're watching online, if you're hearing this later, maybe you're in a watery trial. And I want to give you the promises of God today. I want want you to hear this and soak this in. If you're a note taker and you want to write, write quickly. God promises you today in Christ to strengthen you. That's Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. God promises to give you rest. That's Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. God promises to take care of all your needs. That's Philippians 4, 19. God promises to answer your prayers. Matthew 7, 7. God promises to work everything out for the good of those who love him. Romans 8, 28. God promises to be with you. Joshua 1, 5 and 9. God promises to protect you. Psalm 91, 2. God promises freedom from your sin. That's 1 John 1, 9 and John 8, 36. God promises that nothing can separate you from his love. Romans 8, 38 through 39. God promises those who believe in him everlasting life. That's John 3, 16. Beloved, open God's word. Why would you not open God's word? Why would you not let that truth, those promises, those blessings, why would you not let them command the storm in your life to cease? He alone, Jesus alone, can calm the tempest of your soul. For when all you know is that God is infinitely holy and you are wholly sinful, and when inwardly all strength is gone and outwardly all things are against you, this is when Christ is all in all. 
That is when Christ will be your all in all and you will look to him and you will know that salvation is from the Lord. There's another one. There's another one in scripture who entered into this inestimable grief, this forsakenness like Jonah. Back in our series on Mark, we talked about this, didn't we? We talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and we looked at that horrible hour where he stood at the mouth of the furnace the furnace of God's wrath that belonged to us. We should have walked in and he walked in for us and he called out to the Lord for help. You see, Jonah felt abandoned, but Christ was totally abandoned. Abandoned in our place. Jonah got himself into the trouble, but Christ accepted the wrath to pay the penalty of our sins on our, that were not his own. The expression of grief and terror from the drowning prophet, from Jonah, this whole psalm of Jonah is a mere echo of Christ's cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus, who identifies with mankind in all facets, including in the full experience of death, he went through hell so that all of us who believe in him might never have to. Because Christ was abandoned, we have hope that we never will be. So cry out to the Lord. Secondly and quickly, we have Jonah's preservation. Back in 2021, a man named Michael Packard, a commercial lobster diver, was on his second dive of the day when he was swallowed by a humpback whale. He writes, all of a sudden I felt this huge shove and the next thing I knew it was completely black. I was completely inside. It was completely black. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. You see, by reason, no hope. No way out. And yet he gave the interview. (laughs) He gave the interview. You see, I wonder how Jonah felt as the jaws of the powerful fish closed around him and he was not out of it. The next day and the day after. Can you, if you have claustrophobia, <laughs> would you imagine this with me, if you will? Would, would you just think about this with me? Three days being pressed on by the muscles of the fish, the slime, the seawater, the darkness. See, again, it's here where many say, this couldn't possibly be real. This can't be real. No human could survive in the acids of a fish's stomach. And, you know, if it was a whale, you couldn't... But there are two simple options. The first is that it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Consider how amazing this creature was. How it had spent its entire life for this very moment. God had fed it and nurtured it and cared for it. It was like a mini ark. Like a little ark that was going to carry Jonah, the dove of truth, and deliver him to safety. Perhaps it was a a post-flood aquatic dinosaur that God had been keeping in the deep. Right? Kids, think about that one. That's fun. No human could survive. That's, That's correct. No human on his own. But God preserved Jonah's life. That was a miracle. The second possibility is that Jonah actually suffocated and died, and that God brought him back from the dead. Many commentators actually like that. They like that option. There are at least eight other resurrections recorded in the Bible, of course, as well as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jonah's experience in particular, what by Jesus, he said it was a prophetic sign of that. So that's a possibility. We'll talk about that next week. 
So people who dismiss this outright or try to allegorize the fish or say, no, it's just a metaphor, it's a poem, it doesn't really happen, they're just not being faithful. They're not, they're not believing in the God whose salvation is from the Lord, right? They're not believing in the God of miracles. They're trying to domesticate the story. They want this story to fit in a nice little box. But it's a miracle. The entire point is that this isn't normal. <laughs> this, this isn't normal. All creation obeys God. We just heard in the last chapter, I worship the big one. Which little deity do you worship? Uh, <laughs> Sorry to tell you this, sailors, I worship the God of the sky, of the land, of the sea. He he made it all. And they were terrified. So God appoints the fish to rescue Jonah. I used to think this was punishment. No, it's a rescue. This is a rescue from God. This is grace from God. Jonah has three days now of peace and quiet to think about his sin. (laughs) Three days of peace and quiet to reflect upon God's mission of mercy. You better believe the second he gets out of there, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to Nineveh. The fish swallowing Jonah is a means of deliverance. Could Jonah save himself? Could Jonah forgive his own sins? It's kind of a silly question. You know the answer. And yet so many today are still trying to figure that out. How do I earn my own salvation? How do I, how do I pick myself up by my spiritual theological bootstraps? And Jonah says, you can't. You can't. Just as God prepared the fish and preserve Jonah before you were even born, God was working towards your salvation as well. He knew you. He predestined you, called you, changed your heart, justified you by faith, even now sanctifies you in that seat, and he preserves you until the day he will bring you into glory. From beginning to end, God is sovereign. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Which leads to our final point, Jonah's prayer of faith. He's on the boat. He's on the boat. He's running from the Lord. He cannot pray. He is impotent in prayer. But in the belly of the fish, he does. I wonder, do you sometimes have trouble praying? (laughs) I know my answer to that. You see, O. Palmer Robertson, the great uh, commentator, pastor, all sorts of things, he calls unconfessed sin a fishbone stuck in your windpipe. You cannot breathe with any semblance of normality until you remove the obstruction. And the same is true with prayer. Jonah had that fishbone of unconfessed sin stuck in his windpipe. And he couldn't get it out. In the belly of the great fish, we have what is probably the weirdest location anyone's ever prayed from in all of history. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. Jonah is being punished. He's in this mess because of his own sin. It's his own rebellion that's ended him up in the fish, yet he cries out to the one holding the rod. What a wonderful testimony that is to God's mercy. You see, even when you are being chastened and disciplined by God, you can still pray. You may still cry out for deliverance. He he will hear you. He will hear you and he will answer you. This prayer... From Jonah, though it's remarkable in its circumstances, it carries with it all the marks of true prayer, all the principles of prayer. In fact, if you hold this prayer up, up against the Psalms, they sound exactly like, hear, hear this again, your billows swept over me. That's, that sounds like Psalm 42.7. I've been banished. That sounds like Psalm 31.22. I've been engulfed up to my neck. That sounds like Psalm 69.1. My life was fading away. That sounds like Psalm 147.3. 
I will look to your holy temple. That sounds like Psalm 18.6 and so forth and so on. And so what's Jonah doing from the belly of the fish? He cannot pray, so he sings. He sings what he knows. He knows from his, from his very birth he's been taught these psalms. And so he sings and, he's, and he prays and he calls out to the Lord. He's singing scripture. He's calling out to the Lord, but the only thing he can get out of his mouth, he's holding to the promises of God by faith. When Paul and Silas are in prison, what are they doing? They sing. They sing. And this is what the faith, the heart of faith in the saints will do. We will, we will sing in the dark and we will sing songs about the light. We will be in the dark and we'll be singing songs about the light because we hold to the, that unseen promise of God. How easy it is for us to be prayerless when we're in the belly of the boat, when the sky is calm and everything's going our way and we're in the belly of the boat. There's, there's no need for us to pray, right? Not a single thought goes to the Lord. The sun is shining. The waves are, everything's beautiful. But the second our sin is exposed, the tempest of God's wrath is raging upon us. This is when we start, again, our emergency prayers. And we come to God and he's just a vending machine for us. Lord, I'm here. Sorry, time for more. Time for more blessings. Thanks. See you again. Let it not be so. It's here in the overwhelming assault that we must repent of those times. And we must learn how to pray. We must look into the mirror of God's holy law and say, Father, I've, I've done it again. Forgive me. Look into the face of Christ. See the unimpeachable character of Jesus. See his, see his excellencies and say, Lord, make me like you. Forgive me. Look to the cross. Cry out, Holy Spirit, create in me a clean heart. Forgive me. Jonah's faith was tried, it was corrected, and it stood the test. This is verse 4. Verse 4 is really the hinge point on which the whole poem holds. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. He's he's, He's from the presence of the Lord. Yet. And what a sweet word that is, yet. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. You see, he says, I will look to God's holy temple. What does that mean? He says it twice. And you read that and you go, well, is it just like the Muslims? You know, the Muslims get down and they, they pray facing Mecca. They have to do this. It's not superstition, what Jonah's doing. It's an assurance. It's an assurance resting on God's covenant faithfulness. He says, I'm looking to the temple because you've placed your name there. I'm looking to the temple because you placed your presence there. I'm going back to your presence. I ran from it. I don't want to ever do that again. I'm going to your presence. He's touching the unseen realm. He's reaching by faith for God's holy name. He's feeling for it in the dark. He's resting upon God's holy word. It was in the temple that God's symbol of love, his favor, his presence rested. That blood-sprinkled altar, that mercy seat, was where Jonah was aiming his prayer. He did not think that God was merely confined to an ark. He had learned that the hard way. God's everywhere. But the temple was the revelation that this omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful God was a very present help in times of trouble. If that that symbol, that mere symbol of the temple was so precious to Jonah, 
how much more precious should Christ be to us? The cross of Calvary was the ultimate proof, the ultimate truth of God's grace and love towards sinners. And so in the midst of the throne room, there stands the Lamb that was slain, the one who always lives to intercede for his people. We have an advocate in the Father and free and open access to the throne of grace by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, faith will conquer all. Faith, let faith conquer all and go to him daily. Go to the throne of grace daily in prayer. Christ can calm the chaotic waters of this life. Verse 7, yet you brought up my life from the pit. That's triumphant faith. That's triumphant faith. He prays that while he's still in the belly of the fish. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. He's already aiming towards the temple. I'm going to be there. He's praying this prayer as if he's already on dry land. That's his faith. And if we go to the Old Testament, we see Abraham by faith looking forward. We see Noah building an ark when there's no sign of rain. By faith, Abel, Enoch, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. What are they doing? They're grabbing hold of the promises of God. They cannot see it. There's no baby in my womb, Sarah says. But I'm going to hold fast that he who promised is faithful. Dr. Helen Rosevere was a missionary to the Congo. We've been talking about missions this month. It's been wonderful. She told the following story. A mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep the infant alive, but the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her little sister. One of the girls responded, Dear God, please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late because by then the baby will be dead. And dear Lord, send a little doll for the sister so that she won't feel so lonely. That afternoon, a large package arrived from England. The children watched eagerly as we opened it. Much to their surprise, under some clothing was a hot water bottle. Immediately, the girl who had prayed so earnestly started to dig deeper. And she exclaimed, if God sent that, I'm sure he also sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of that child's little sincere request. And five months earlier, he had led a ladies' Bible study to include both of those specific Articles. How many of those stories have you heard in your life? There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stories of God doing exactly what he said he would do. Of answering the prayers of his children when we come to him in faith. And yet how hard is it for us to actually believe it? Why don't we believe it? Why can't we hold on to it? Why can't we trust that God will answer prayer like that? In our own lives. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. It's that simple. By faith we got to pray. And by faith we take hold of these truths and we pray. And by God's grace he teaches us how to do that. To pray. The clergyman Ian Bounds, he wrote 11 books. Nine of which are on prayer. And in one he writes this. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better. Not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. That's what we need at First Presbyterian Church. We need men and women mighty in prayer. We do not need gimmicks. We do not need new things. We do not need new machinery. We need people that pray. We need people that pray. 
What will all this prayer and faith bring about? Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You see, that's it. He who called light and darkness into being, he who called the, the sky and the, separated all these things, he, 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 who, he who spoke and it was, says, spit him out. And the fish says, yes, Lord. That's all it takes. It, that's all God has to do is to simply speak. And so then we have to ask ourselves, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is the arm of the Lord too short? Are his pockets ever in danger of being emptied by us? So then do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see, what a joy this is. What a joy it is to know that we can talk to the Lord in prayer. Beloved, let us approach the throne of grace by prayer. Are you running from the Lord? What a silly thing. What a silly thing. Why would you run from the Lord? Stop, admit your wrongs and come to him. Are you a great sinner? Run in the opposite direction from your sin. He's waiting. Do not turn inwards. Do not not let grief and despair swallow you whole. God will send a fish. And you may have to spend three days of correction in that belly. (laughs) It'll be good for you. It'll be uncomfortable. It'll be painful. But he will spit you out in newness of life. Now we have a new and living way into the Holy of Holies. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. We enter in through the veil of his body. This is the one place. Jesus Christ is the one place in the entire cosmos where a sinner can find grace, mercy, and be reconciled to his creator. There's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. Surely you're not as far as gone as Jonah. Surely. You're here. If you were as far gone as Jonah, you'd be in the water. You'd be sinking in the ocean depths. You're here by God's grace. Take comfort. You see, friends, if your salvation was dependent upon you, things would be hopeless. That would be, you would be hopeless. But thanks be to God, salvation belongs to him. And so we hope. We hope against hope. Let's pray.